Thank you for tuning in to the Radio Bible Course. Paul the Apostle has written to the Philippians, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There comes a time when people won't listen to you as you try to enlighten them about the truth of God's Word. Some of them have been brainwashed. And there's nothing you can do for them. When you reach that point, you can pray for them. Pray for what? Well, you can ask the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and your Father, if you're a believer, to enable the Bible to reveal the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul's remedy for anxiety is prayer. The urging of Paul to avoid anxiety is not an order to be indifferent toward people and circumstances. For after all, we are told repeatedly in the New Testament to care for people and to show concern. We had it in this epistle, where Paul wrote, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Was Paul concerned about other believers? Oh, he was. I think of those believers in Judea during the famine. Paul was very concerned about them. But there's no record that he prayed for them. He did something better. He went out and raised money for them. And the epistle to the Corinthians talks about that fundraising activity for the poor saints in Judea. Paul expressed this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. What kind of anxiety? He was concerned for them, and rightfully so, because he had brought the gospel to those cities, and churches had resulted. He sent Timothy to Philippi because he was concerned for the church there. He could do something about those problems, and he did. And we ought to follow Paul's example. Do what you can do, and then ask God to do what you cannot do. We read in the book of Acts that there was an assassination plot against the Apostle Paul, and when he learned of it, he did what he could. He saw to it that the highest Roman military official got word of it. And the result was that 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 horsemen escorted Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. We don't read anything about him praying for divine deliverance. But there are times when we can't do anything about things. That's the time to pray. God expects you to be acting sensibly about the situation and where you can bring relief to a difficult situation, do it. Some years ago, when a hurricane wiped out a city in southwest Louisiana, I remember telling my class about it, and I said, don't pray for those people. Send money. They didn't need prayers. They needed help. When Paul was in Iconium on his first missionary journey, the Jews stirred up the Gentiles against the brethren, but... Paul continued to preach the word of God's grace, 
And then we read this in Acts chapter 14, verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to molest them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. Well, they could have stayed there and tried to prove that they were brave and asked God to protect them, but they didn't. They fled to neighboring cities. Why ask for trouble when you can get out of trouble? Now, I'm sure Paul experienced some anxiety, but he could do something about the situation. He could run, and he did. Do what you can and should do, and when you are unable to solve the situation, then go to God. He can help when no man can. Now, in Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. The word prayer is a general term for talking to God, whether confessing, thanking, praising, petitioning, or interceding for others. The word supplication, however, refers to requests. Prayer includes asking, And that implies trust in God. To demand, however, is to trust in oneself and one's ability to persuade God to do something, perhaps against his will. Now, we ought to ask, but we ought to ask with thanksgiving. Now, I see that as the key to getting God's peace in matters that trouble us. Will God calm the troubled heart? God's Word says that God gives peace. It comes when our giving of thanks for God's care represents our sense of acceptance of the circumstances which have come upon us. When there is trouble, pray about it, but pray about it and give thanks. Thanks for trouble? Yes, thanks that it wasn't worse. You may have had an accident. Thank God that all the children were not killed. You've had a fire in your home? Thank God the entire house didn't burn down. There's always something to give thanks for. Yes, there are problems that we encounter, but they could be much worse. God loves people with a thankful heart, people who are willing to accept the problems that come and turn to their Heavenly Father who can give them peace of heart while they endure the problem. For the man or the woman living for Christ, no matter what arises, God can give peace, and we ought to ask for it. Can a woman who has been abandoned by her husband find peace? Can a man experience a bankrupt business and find peace? Or can a parent who is grieved by the criminal act of his child find peace? Yes, he can. God's peace, Paul writes in verse 7, is beyond our understanding or our reason to understand or imagine. Now, do we get that peace when we pray? Not always. Only when we pray with thanksgiving. Because to give thanks is to commit to another's care and to thus be unburdened concerning things beyond our control. This word thanksgiving is the word eucharistia, the word from which we get eucharist or giving of thanks. 
The peace, Paul writes, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. The word guard is a military term. He's telling us that God's peace stands watch over us. It protects us. It is God's sentry, protecting the heart and the mind. This word, Eucharistia in the Greek, the word translated to give thanksgiving, is a word that denotes gratitude. When a troubled soul recalls God's goodness in the past and expresses it to his Father in heaven, even though he's in trouble, he is delivered from becoming an ungrateful and pitiful person. Now, Paul here talks about the peace of God. I point out the difference between the peace of God and the peace with God. First, all men must have peace with God because sin has made us enemies of God and we are in enmity with the Creator. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 tells us that if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, yes indeed, we were enemies, but God has brought us to Himself. Now, how to get peace with God is revealed in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's salvation. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are given eternal life and you are made a child of God and you have peace with God. His death made peace possible. Your faith in Him makes it certain. But Paul in this prayer is talking about the peace of God, peace which comes from God for the heart and for the troubled mind. Now we go to chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. Here is the honored list of ethical terms which has been called a charter for Christian thought. All of these virtues except one are found in the writings of the Greeks, and in the Greek version of the Old Hebrew Testament. The Greek Stoics, who were followers of that Greek philosophy of the 4th century B.C. in Athens, believed that virtue was the highest good. They taught that men should be unmoved by life's happenings and free of passion. Their writings employ the words that are before us here. Now, that does not mean that Paul borrowed these terms from the pagans. Look at this list. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute. Those are words that Paul uses in this verse. What does he mean by true? That has the sense of being valid or reliable, like God. Think about those things, Paul tells them. And if there is anything honorable, that means noble or worthy of respect. Ah, that's where we ought to focus our minds. 
if there is anything right, that means upright and just, something that is conformable to divine standards. Then Paul talks about if there is anything that is pure. What does pure mean? It means stainless, not just chastity. And he talks about lovely. And this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. It refers to what is pleasing and agreeable. If there's any good repute, that's a word that refers to gracious. This word is the exception in this list. It's not found in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And some translators translate it fair speaking. It refers to that which puts the most favorable construction on anything and thus refers to someone or something being praiseworthy. Then Paul adds, if there is any virtue or excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. That's a good note to end our program today. Did you know that there are people who believe that we are saved by grace, but then we should live by the Ten Commandments as Christians? And did you know that nowhere in the book of Acts did any apostle ever urge any new believer to live by the Ten Commandments or the Law of Moses? Paul the Apostle wrote in his epistles, You are not under law, you are under grace. What does that mean? We think our 30-page booklet on the great word of the Bible, grace, will answer those questions. Write for a free copy. Ask for the free grace booklet. Until tomorrow, this is Nick Calavota reminding you that the word gospel means good news. Our address is Radio Bible Courses, Post Office Box 14916, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, 70898. The website is rbcword.org.